Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight's features include overrated blue people and underrated evil people. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Nariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani in a constant struggle between love and hate. And I am Adam Thomas and you are on Pandora. You ain't in Kansas anymore, you're on double-edged double bill. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, well, for those of you who might be new, um, at the end of our previous episode, we did our usual pick-in, where both of us came to the table with uh, two movies. One um, had two good, and one had two bad. But in the case of this week, uh, good and bad, specifically two underrated movies and two overrated ones. That's the topic for today, but we ended up with one for me that I considered very underrated, which was Night of the Hunter, and Adam's pick for overrated, which was... James Cameron's massive, epic Avatar, or, as Arnold Schwarzenegger pronounced it infamously on the Golden Globes the year that that came out, Abada, which is my favorite oh, mispronunciation yes, I did, of all I time. I forgot about that. No, 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 no. <laughs> the best is Travolta. Well, uh, that's true. Uh, Adele Dazim. You know, I, I, I'm hoping Adele Dazim is in those Abada sequels. I, I can't wait. <laughs> right. Oh, just, they'll have some hamburgers. Um, uh, oh yes, yeah. That's, well, that's about as political as we're going to get. Anyways, <laughs> um, <laughs> so we should emphasize with our overrated and underrated picks. Um, we're usually subjective on this show, but this is easily the most subjective we have been as of yet. Because overrated and underrated is such a nebulous term, anyway. Overall, because it's like, I, is it is it overrated by the standards of like how much money it made versus how much it is considered, you know, a good movie today or vice versa, or it's, it's all tentative. And as we get into our feedback, which will be at the end of the episode, um, also very tentative of what those words mean in general. Yeah. I, I tend to, when I think of underrated, overrated, like movies that I just can't stand that everybody likes, you know, or movies I love that seems like not a lot of people even know about or have, or just don't like either. I don't really tend to look at the critical consensus or the box office or anything like that. Personally, Well, we'll get into all of that as we define both of our picks and why they're necessarily under or overrated, but I think we both mutually agree that um, my pick for underrated was underrated on a larger scale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's get into uh, our oldest film we have yet to cover on the show, 1955's Night of the Hunter. Here is all the passion and suspense of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Well... I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. Feel myself getting awful mad. Superb, unforgettable performances. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The Night of the Hunter. So yes, uh, Night of the Hunter uh, came out... On July 26, 1955, uh, directed by Charles Lawton, his only film, um, and Charles Lawton was uh, famous prior to this for being a very well-respected character actor. Unfortunately, not a lot of people really remember him as a character actor in his prime, but most might recognize him from the RKO version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame from the 30s. Oh, yeah! See, that's how much uh, research I do. Uh, but Adam, are, were you that familiar with Lawton's work prior to this or anything like that as an actor? Um, I mean, not incredibly, no. I, I remember Spartacus, uh, one of his westerns he did that my dad loved, uh, the Wagon Train, things like that. Um, but other than that, not incredibly much so, no. 
Yes, um, uh, at this stage in his career, he was apparently kind of transitioning out of doing film acting and doing more stage uh, direction, especially. And this was his first film, and obviously last film that he did. When I first came on this, I was aware of this movie more because a lot of people who are sort of like film historians really love this one. It wasn't one that was accepted very much at the time, probably considering the controversial subject matter. The movie stars Robert Mitchum as a preacher, uh, Harry Powell, who is in prison at the beginning of the movie. Selma ends up being Peter Graves, who is this petty criminal who ends up stealing about $10,000 and keeps it hidden away uh, with his his kids. And he tells Harry Powell in his cell about his past with the, uh, the money and that it's actually at his home. And Harry Powell literally gets out of jail, poses as another preacher after killing several widows uh, while posing as a preacher, and shacks up with... Um, Shelley Winters, who plays the widow of Peter Graves, and uh, tries to get the money from the kids. And um, for 1955, it's pretty fucking hardcore. Yeah, dude, it's a dark, dark movie. I mean, A, he's a serial killer. But he's like a religious, like, fanatic serial killer. And the fact that he's going after children and, you know, with a friggin' switchblade and... You know, what he does to the widow. And I couldn't believe it the first time I saw this. Now, the first time I saw this, I'll be honest, it was like, you know, I I was pretty young. But I thought it was kind of boring. But I was also probably 12 or 13 years old. And I hadn't seen it for a long time until I got a magazine. I want to say it was like Rue Morgue or something. It was like the top 100 horror or thriller movies that nobody's seen. And this was one of them. And I'm like, really? Night of the Hunter? So I rewatched it. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, I love this movie. Robert Mitchum is terrifying in this movie. But yeah, like I said, the subject matter alone, especially for 1955, that's crazy. Like I could see a movie like that existing like in the 90s when like Seven was coming out and all those. It would fit right along with their movie of this subject matter. But in the 50s, that's crazy. Yeah, and I was kind of rejected at the time because it was seen as sort of scandalous and not of like a a moral picture at the time that this came out. Uh, But I I do agree. I didn't actually watch this until a few months ago, back when um, the streaming service Filmstruck was around. uh, R.I.P. Filmstruck. Uh, But this is one of the movies, and I just heard about it from people like uh, who were very influenced by, especially uh, Spike Lee. I remember seeing like a talk of him talking about how influenced he was to the point where the, what I referenced earlier, the initials love and hate on Robert Mitchum's fingers actually inspired the bit with Rady Rahim, where he has those, like, plates on his fingers, which mm-hmm. is amazing. And that's honestly, that's, I've seen that so many times. I'm like, oh, shit, this is where it started. And so I did watch this movie, and I was so impressed by it when I watched it back in, like, August, I immediately just Amazon bought the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. Which it's I bet a, looks fantastic. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's such a great <laughs> translation, and there's so many great extras on there. Um, but I think what is especially fascinating, I mean, you mentioned the religious angle of it. There's so many movies that I've seen that have come out since this movie that I don't think have such an interesting angle on religion. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I'm not a religious person, but I, I am fascinated by what religion especially can, how it can affect people. And I love to have this movie handles that with Robert Mitchum uh, versus... Uh, Lillian Gish's character. Um, I, I really love the sort of way they parallel each other because Robert Mitchum is, as you mentioned, he's a religious seller dude at the beginning. He's talking to God after murdering this widow about like, oh, what, who's the next one I need to murder? Who do I need to go to now? It's all in your hands. Versus Lillian Gish, who is this woman that clearly has like this religious connection herself, but all the strength that she has really comes from her own character. That's why I like is religion is sort of treated as this nebulous, neutral position that people can attach things onto. And you can tell it clearly comes from like Charles Lawton was famously not a big fan of the church because he was a closet homosexual. And so he clearly had like a lot of issues with the church, but I like the fact that he treats it sort of like this neutral thing that either evil or good can blossom from. And I think that's so nuanced and wonderfully presented here. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, especially how, you know, the certain parts where he would just stop and look up to the sky to like almost get a sign from God and just, ah, man, (laughs) he's so scary. It's, It's that voice of his. And I mean, he when he's turning the charm on to Shelley Winters, you totally buy that she would fall for him and that people in this town would just, you know, be like totally for him and think he's so charming and such a good preacher. 
But then it's like, so he seduces her, basically, and they get married so he can get to the kids and the money. And then it's like, honeymoon night. Uh-oh, shit's rotten in Denmark. <laughs> like, instantly. Instantly. What is she going to do? She's got, she needs someone to help her raise the kids. And even after, like, things go south, she's still under the delusions. Like, no, this has to be a fault with me because my husband ended up g- turning to a life of crime. This right. man that's will true. help me. And like that, that's, there's such a tragedy in her performance, too. That's just so much of, like, she she's a single mother who's just had her f- husband, went to prison, was hanged for his crimes, and uh, now she's just trying, like, I need to get, get my life back together, have a good man who I'm with, and you know what, he might downplay me, but it's my fault. You can tell, like, she is someone who is low self-esteem because of what has happened to her, and it's like, oh man, you feel so much for her, and that makes her death all the more just haunting and horrific oh yeah dude i mean life has just beat this poor woman down in the matter of a couple months i mean literally because you got to figure what uh, powell was sentenced to 30 days yeah and they, so within 30 days not real it's probably not exactly 30 days but you got to figure with what within two months all of a sudden this guy's in the picture going after her, her husband was just taken away and killed so I yeah. mean, this she's in a whirlwind of emotions here, and and talk about the death. God, what a haunting scene! Right, Her even body just like, underwater. Oh, my well, yeah, that God. scene obviously, especially just how it's photographed and it looks almost like it's a found footage. Like we just discovered this body underneath the water. Like, right, it's how real it feels. But then even the build up to it. In the bedroom where there's no actual, like, penetration of, like, him slitting her throat. The way this is directed, it's interesting where you can kind of tell that there's definitely a bit of a stage influence in terms of some of the ways that, like, especially when you see, like, the whole set as the actors are interacting in it. You can tell that, like, that's Lawton's sort of uh, theatrical uh, directing on display there. But just the lighting and the use of especially almost feels like German expressionism, the way that the sets are constructed so angularly. Like how Robert Mitchum's in the middle of that room and just this giant point, like there's so much headroom. You see the whole space of this entire set. You feel like you're enclosed with them in this place and you just want to get the fuck out of there. Oh yeah, dude, definitely. And then like even the shots where the little boy, I forget his name now, but him and Pearl, John, John and Pearl, they're looking out the you know the window late at night and all of a sudden his shadow just becomes huge on the wall and just like totally eclipses them. Just that shot alone. I, I you know what? I didn't think of it that way, but I, I think you might be onto something there with the influences from like German expressionism. And, but I also want to point out the whole time I'm watching this and I'm looking at the dad and the whole time, I don't know why I never placed. I'm like, who is that? Who is that? And I saw the name and then all of a sudden it just hit me. <laughs> you ever seen a grown man naked? Oh yeah, Peter Graves, yes. Yeah, like, yes, Peter Graves. <laughs> to be fair, the moment I hear his voice, I immediately just think, just think this is biography. <laughs> Which, it's oh, a shame yeah. those are completely lost to time now, because biography changed that shit over after a while. Even before he died, they were just like, nope, that doesn't exist. Those Peter Graves ones, like, I want my Peter Graves biography episodes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it's so funny. Because there are scenes in this movie that, taken out of context, could be quite silly. The end where Robert Mitchell's at the house, in the house, and the cat runs up, and the way he pops up with his face, and she shoots him in the arm or whatever. Just, just the look on his face is so silly. But just something about Robert Mitchell makes me feel a little uneasy. It's, it's not a bad thing, because it works, especially from a lot of the roles he does. I don't know that this movie's underrated, Thomas. I just think it's underseen. Like, especially nowadays, and well, I guess back then, too, it didn't make a lot of money, but people know of this movie, but nobody's really seen it. No, that's why I would say it's underrated more in terms of, like, a larger cultural standpoint, because it's, it's like I said, it's very well appreciated by a lot of, like, sort of um, film historians and filmmakers who were inspired by it, but I just don't think a lot of people really are aware of this one. I think it's, for stuff like, I agree, I think Robert Mitchum especially, what's interesting is he, in, when he's talking to other people in the town as a preacher, he feels very personable, he feels very much like, oh, I'm just a neighborhood dad, I'm just here having fun with all of you, and I just want to instill so much life and love into this community. But it's just sort of that inner evilness that comes out, especially when, like, he how he manipulates the children, how that spreads over to the entire town. I love how they do that, but at the same time, they don't also let certain other people off the hook. Like, when the townspeople come back near the end of the movie, and they want to have this huge mob thing go on, it's like, look at these poor children who were manipulated. It's like, so were you. (laughs) All of them. 
you weren't that different from the children. You know, the children are just trying to, like, live their lives now. And you're just trying to, like, literally have a giant fucking mob with torches uh, angle going on. I, I just love how they handle it, especially with, like, the, the people who run, like, the little neighborhood shop who we keep seeing throughout the whole time. And the husband's like, I don't know, he feels kind of weird. Oh, stop questioning that preacher. His wife's always like that. It's such a great way of showing off, like how easily people can be manipulated and how pissed off they can feel by the end of it and how they won't let go of a grudge by the end of it. Right. And the thing about it is too, I don't know that the children manipulated nearly in the same way that the adults were. Um, the little boy didn't buy it for a second. Like he knew what was going on right from day, day one. And Pearl, she was manipulated only by the fact that she wanted a dad. Kind of funny that way that these adults just buy into this hook, line and sinker and the smartest one in the movie is like a you know an eight year old boy. He's like, no, this guy's full of shit. Like I'm telling you, no. And nobody believed him, even to the point where he's telling his mother she doesn't want to believe it. Not that right. she doesn't, she doesn't want to. Right. And the smartest adult is the one that actually has so much more of a connection to the children once Lillian Gish comes into the play. On that, That's fucking I, fantastic. She's so great, and especially oh. how she handles going off of uh, Robert Mitchum when he comes into it. I, I love that scene where the whole movie he's been singing that leaning song, which is terrifying. He turns yes, him terrifying. into a horror theme whenever he shows up. Um, and then how he ends up like outside the doorstep and she does a duet with him. And there's that weird thing where I love how this movie uses light, especially with like the, that moment where she's in silhouette, but he's in pure cascading light. And then that reverses the moment that the uh, younger woman comes in with the candle and then he uh-huh. disappears off frame. Um, I just, I, I love how that all that, that's all used, especially just to portray Lillian Gish as like, she's this woman who has like, who's clearly tired, but has so much of like a protective spirit to her that she wants to help these kids. But you can see how tired she is throughout all of this. How she can just barely manage to get the strength to fight this guy. Yeah, uh, and you know, now that you brought her up too, I, I'd argue that maybe the whole Ruby thing wasn't very necessary uh, with her like kind of being in love with him. But yeah, I really did like that scene where he's on the outside of the screen, he's sitting on the fence post singing and she's sitting in the rocking chair with the shotgun just singing along with them and then as soon as she comes in lights the candle and then she quickly stamps it out and he's gone like it just it it's so that song is so fucking creepy man <laughs> like it's terrifying she she comes off so warm and just caring but still kind of a hard ass where she doesn't take any crap off these kids either mm-hmm like she, she really does love them and care for them and everything. Even like when the Ruby character admits that she hasn't been going to sewing lessons, she's been seeing boys and she doesn't whip her. She doesn't scold her. She doesn't, you know, she understands. It's just such a good performance, man. You feel like, oh, grandma, <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's my gram, gram. Right. And I, and I love the fact that she has this like direct connection to these kids and she's able to like see through like, even, like, the older one has is having that issue where you're talking about where she's getting seduced by Robert Mitchum. But it, it's basically, she's kind of, like, having this weird connection where she's so attracted to him, but yet is willing to admit, like, no, I, it's only because, like, I was attracted, I needed this love in my life. It's something that even Shelley Winters wasn't even willing to admit. It's this interesting perspective where the adults are so in their sort of old ways that they want to have some sort of, you know, connection. They want to have a scapegoat. They want to have, you know, somebody who can be a pillar for the community that they don't necessarily need to be because they feel nervous about themselves. They show that throughout with all these adults. Meanwhile, the kids are so much more pure because they're like, no, we're not diluted by all this bullshit. (laughs) It's weird that it kind of feels, and this is not a connection, but the structure of it kind of reminded me of like a lot of, kids fiction that would come especially in like the 80s and 90s like this is the same structure as any goddamn goosebumps book i was literally gonna say that 100 rl stein totally ripped off night of the hundred for all of his books poltergeist too man it's that old ass preacher man that's true same outfit and everything god is in his holy temple adam oh god that guy's so scary okay (laughs) (laughs) oh i don't want to spook you too much um (laughs) But no, yeah, I, I like the fact that with Robert Mitchum, he even comes off as monsters at certain points and kind of cartoonish. You mentioned, like, the scene where he pops up, um, and even when he's, like, running away into the barn, there's sort of, like, a cartoonish angle to it that's initially kind of, like, laugh-worthy. But I love the fact that they show him at his base core, this dude who was so charming, so elegant, is a fucking animal. Is a monster. 
doesn't have any real humanity to him at all when he's threatened. He has so much more of, like, a cowardly, animalistic, venomous stake to him that he can't even control, like, when he's around the kids. I love the scene where he's confronting Pearl about just, like, John's a bit of a ne'er-do-well. I know you're a good girl. You can tell me where the money's hid. Tell me. Tell me. And he keeps getting, like, more and more nefarious. And it's mostly shown through, like, that establishing shot of the house but just the terror that's in their voices. And then how Shelly Winters comes in is hearing all of this. And Shelly Winters comes in, she's just like, oh, he's stern, but he's 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 a good man. I need a good man in my life. Like, how far she's gone by that point. It's just, it's so good. And you could tell that, you know, the father, he was trying to do it for the kids and the wife. Whatever, just to make their life better. But it's just, hey man, don't hate the play, I hate the game. What I like about that also is the fact that you, you get so much of, like, for a 50s movie especially, you would think, oh, this is going to obviously end up happily. But, especially when I was watching the first time, there's that point after, like, Shelley Winters dies where you're like, are these kids going to fucking die? Is one of these kids going to get fucking killed? You you had that suspense throughout oh, like, yeah. that early part of the movie. Because especially as Charles Lawton, uh, as he directs it, like, you just see, like, how much... It, this, like, idealistic town is cascade and dark and shadow. And we didn't even really talk about probably my favorite of the side characters, Uncle Birdie, the James Gleason yeah. character, who is yeah, so awesome. sad. It's such yeah. a sad character. How terrible do you feel for the kids when they run to him for help? And he's drunk and he can't do anything. He's passed out drunk. Oh, God. But they, hey, man, they steal his boat. Good. Serves him right. The, to go back, we're talking about the one scene where it's the kids in the barn and they're all filthy. And then he's on the horse out on the hill singing that damn song. And you can just see his silhouette. I Right then and there, I'm like, he's going to see them in this barn, dude. He's going to kill these kids. Yep. Like, so I'm saying, he's going to at least kill one of them. Like, he's going to kill the little girl or something. I mean, I'm, gla- I'm glad this movie didn't turn into a child murder movie. <laughs> but still, kind of wanted it to. <laughs> well, I mean, you feel that suspense, especially even just as the kids are, like, going out on that boat, and they're just like, oh, well, we escaped, but it's the unknown wilderness, and we're children. Like, the oldest person <laughs> right. in this boat is eight years old, I think. Yeah, right, exactly. And I love how, too, how Charles Lawton just, like, shoots all those sequences of nature. Like, the various different animals that show up don't know if they can really survive, and they have each other, but even then you're just like... How much is that going to carry you? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, they're literally begging for food, and the woman gives them a potato. No, I didn't expect them to make it very long. I didn't expect it to end up where it went, really, with them finding a new family. No, I, I, I don't know, honestly, what I expected the first time I saw this movie. I was so nervous because, like you said, these kids. And then it's like they get in the skiff, and like, oh, wait. And then, oh, he's right there. Like, he's there, man. He's busting through those tree branches. He's in the mud. He almost gets them. I mean, he's just so close to getting them. And there was no doubt in my mind if you'd have gotten me to killed one of them. That horrible scream that oh, he Oh, so terrible. Oh, my God. Right, out of out of that dude. Because it's like, it's so high-pitched and against type, too. Yeah, like I said, his animalistic sheen is coming out of, like, that upright posture it's just it's completely degrading i love that in mitchum's performance how it just completely degrades i also just love certain smaller moments like the bit where he actually discovers the doll is where they were holding everything and he just sits down and looks up just like the doll it starts laughing yeah like of course of course it's in the damn doll (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then that great shot of they go up the basement and he's literally like crawling up the stairs to try and get him Almost like Frankenstein outreached arms. Yes. Yeah, so cool. Another one, too, that I really, really liked. Might be actually one of my favorite shots in the movie when the little girl's like playing with the money or whatever right in front of the house on the, the walkway and the little boy's picking up and they're trying to stuff it in the doll and then all of a sudden you hear his voice coming from inside the house. Yes. You know, boy, what are you doing? Well, and then it, you slowly see him coming almost into the frame in the doorway. And then slowly comes out the whole time talking to him. It, it just, it creeped me out, man. This movie is shot fantastically. Yes. Obviously, it's an older movie. Like, it is the oldest one we've done for the show. It's 1955, black and white, classic actors. And, you know, of course, the cars and things like that. But just the way it's shot and the cinematography and the sound design and the edits doesn't feel... Like an old-timey movie. 
it feels very timeless in terms of where it is. Yeah, is, uh, right. Yeah, I agree. Even, even though it takes place during like the Depression era, um, it still just feels like this could be of any time, any place that doesn't have cell phones, basically. Um, mm-hmm. it, just it, it, There is a timeless quality to it. I think it's because of the influence that it's had. The direct influence of people like a Spike Lee, um, like an R.L. Stein, even, as we mentioned. It, it's, it's definitely one of those things where it's sort of like the Weird Al effect, like, people know the influences, but they don't really know the influencer, necessarily, with this one. Right. Yeah, I'd say that's incredibly accurate. Which is a shame. I don't own a physical copy of this. In fact, I don't own a physical copy of a lot of movies anymore. Um, but I bought the HD version right on Prime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's on there. And it wasn't that much, if I remember correctly. I think it was only, like, 14 bucks. Dude, it, it's worth it. It's worth to buy it. Even if you only watch it once a year, it's worth it. Or if you got somebody over and this is a definitely a good movie to show to somebody who's never seen it. Especially it's all in like 90 minutes. It's a very short movie too. And it's it's perfectly compact, it's concise, but you get all of the stuff that we're talking about. There's so much to analyze about just like the the character motivations and the religious angles and all this other stuff that it's so rich yet it's so compact and perfectly put together in this 90 minute package yeah dude 100 percent. it's breezes by too like i said the only time where i felt like it slagged just a little bit is with the ruby thing but the ruby thing's only like five minutes for only a five minute thing to make you be like oh god i will say this anytime robert mitchum is not on screen though i can't take my eyes off him like it's not like i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm in love with robert mitchum i don't know but He's he, oh god, he's just so good in this. It's so unnerving. I mean, progenitor of the dad bod, Robert Mitchum. Oh yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But 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 no, I think what works about him though is do you need Robert Mitchum in there? Especially, it works so well in the first half of the movie. But at the same time, I think having him a bit more sporadically, I think that's necessary to show that like the sort of devilish character can be combated by like Lillian Gish and how, like I said, his sort of armor breaks apart. I, there's a great bit where like he comes up to Lillian Gish and she doesn't know that Robert Mitchum is like this guy who's choking around and then the kids come up and the John's is like, that ain't my dad. Um, and Robert Mitchum just keeps going on his sob story, but just like, Oh, I'll miss those poor children of mine. And you have no idea how far I've gone to get close to them and how she, the moment John says, like, that's not my dad, and she's like, yeah, I see through his bullshit, and just points that gun <laughs> right. at him. Like, you you need moments like that um, for, and especially even Robert handles that so perfectly with, like, a dark sort of comedy, where, like, he's going away over to his horse, and he's like, well, you haven't seen the last of Harry Powell. <laughs> it feels almost cartoonish, but in a way that's, like, it fits authentically to, like, how really pathetic he really is when he sees true good facing off against him. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, dude, just like I said, that his face when he pops up, and then he hides in the barn. I mean, he got shot, but he just runs away, runs away to the barn. He, he's he's tough against women and children. Anybody else, dude? I mean, the second he pops down and tries to talk to the dad, he just knocks him right out of his bunk. He preys <laughs> on the vulnerable constantly. Yeah, right, constantly constantly so then he meets this woman who's not going to put up with this shit and like you said the little boys that's not my daddy no he ain't ain't no damn preacher neither (laughs) it's like hell yeah dude hell yeah shoot him well i think we're gonna go on just praising it for hours if we don't stop now so final thoughts adam on the night of the hunter uh i mean just a unnerving performance from robert mitchum and just such a great early example of you know just a thriller tense suspense movie just seedy character totally against the time like this is this i cannot believe this movie was made in 1955 with the subject matter and i don't know if it's not enough people have seen it or the people who have seen it are too old they're not talking about it or or what the hell's going on but this is definitely a movie that should be sought out and seen i mean the fact is that it's on the Criterion Collection. Criterion doesn't put their name on anything. They put their name on things that are quality 99.9% of the time. Like Armageddon and, they re- and The Rock. They Armageddon and There's The Rock? The, the original like, DVD and later just releases of that were um, via Criterion. Yes. 
modern Criterion collection. <laughs> <laughs> Once I got into the Blu-ray game, let's put it that way. But most everything they put their name on is of quality. This is not an exception. This It's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I mean, I echo a lot of that. I, I think it's, like I said, it was a movie I loved so much when I first saw it, I immediately just had to buy that Blu-ray. Because I know I was going to watch this at least several more times. This is about the third or fourth time I've seen it since I got that Blu-ray. Because I, I just really love this movie that, as you mentioned, it's very much ahead of its time on every level. But it also doesn't feel like we've passed that time either. There's, there's so much here that feels very modern, feels very real and grounded about just like very basic human issues of like dealing with you know what we perceive to be um what we want to perceive in our lives or what we ultimately get how we want to attach ourselves to somebody who might be a complete wolf in sheep's clothing kind of dude who comes in strells and like oh i i speak for the people i speak for everyone i'm a populist person we said we weren't getting political but yeah, uh, but uh, Mitchum, <laughs> I, I agree. Also, it was just like such a phenomenal performance. Performance for the ages in this one. Everyone else around him, though, is great. I, and I think it's so expertly filmed and uniquely. I don't think there's many other films that just look like this from this time, anyway, either. And it, it's it's such a shame that Charles Law never made another movie after this. Um, you know, I would have loved to have seen more films that did interesting sort of uses of like set composition and the lighting and cinematography and all this other stuff for several years after this. I would have wished to have gotten more. But as it stands, it's this perfect sort of movie that, like I said, it's very appreciated amongst sort of like cinema lovers, but it also would work modern as a huge crowd pleaser. Didn't at the time in 1955, it it's too edgy for the period. But I think uh, now, in a modern context, I think you show this to a big crowd, everyone would be on the edge of their seat. Everyone would be so invested. And as I was the first time I saw it, and as I have been every single time I have seen it. So if you have not seen it, definitely seek out Night of the Hunter. We both heartily recommend it. It is one of the great films. Period. Here, here. Yes, and speaking of great, groundbreaking cinema, it's time to get to our uh, overrated choice, James Cameron's Avatar. Ladies and gentlemen, you are on Pandora. You should see your faces. This December, discover the next generation of 3D. Welcome to a place beyond your imagination where wonder lives and adventure rules. Avatar in 3D. So, Avatar uh, came out December 18th, 2009, at the cusp of its 10-year anniversary, um, the most recent film from mega-director James Cameron of Aliens and Titanic and the Terminator movies, the first two at least, amongst other things. Um, and yeah, this was his big sci-fi epic that he had had in production for about 12 years. And ironically now, given we're about a decade later, uh, we're still waiting for those sequels. Uh, which, admittingly, it, you know, <sighs> it might have earned given the fact that it still stands to be, without adjusting for inflation the highest grossing film of all time at $2.8 billion. That's insane. And admittingly, a lot of it obviously has to do with the fact that this also ushered in the sort of modern 3D craze that we had for a while, um, where there were movies that were in 3D earlier in, like, 2008, 2009, but this is the one that really just, like, sparked the insane sort of, like, hey, let's make every big blockbuster in 3D, even if it doesn't necessarily need it. And, uh, you know, yeah. what ultimately ended up that fizzled after a certain point where we still have movies in 3D. A but... couple years, right? 2014, probably four or five years, and the craze was kind of dead. I think it was definitely dying off around that time. We still have movies in 3D, but it's it's still just a thing of, like, we don't have every single major release really push for that anymore at the same time. And I think that's obviously what inflated a lot of the box office numbers to make it this big, and it was one of, like, the... Before this, only a few handful of movies had gotten to a billion dollars, anyway. After this, we had several... I think it's up to, like, what now? 15 movies have gotten to a billion dollars through, I think, these adjusted sort of ticket grosses and all this other Yeah, I believe so. I think Aquaman was the last one to do it. My man! Aquaman. (laughs) But, you know, Adam, this was your choice for overrated. Um, Why don't you go ahead and sort of describe why you feel this one in particular is overrated. Well, I mean, dude, it's Dances with Wolves, but with blue people. It, it's it's the prototypical white savior movie. It, it's, you know, Last Samurai, Dance with Wolves, just 
granted, yeah, they're blue alien people, but they're savages and blah, blah. I mean, get the fuck. Ugh, unobtainium. Unobtainium. It's, it's, it's a real scientific term, Adam. Okay, well, you know, fuck me, I guess. This is... <laughs> This, and the fucking guy from Drag Me to Hell in Inception, his boring ass. Oh, yeah, Dilip Rajo, yes, returns. Oh, God. It's like this is the first movie my wife and I saw at the theater together. She took me for, I think, Christmas. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money at the time, so this was my Christmas gift. We went and saw this, and we grabbed a couple bottles of wine, and we came back, drank said bottles of wine, and did nothing but talk about how boring this movie was. And we saw it in 3D. It's I find it so just run-of-the-mill, the same story I've seen countless times before and since, and just boring wooden characters, boring wooden, wooden acting. It's just... The, the, uh, Stephen Lang's the best in the movie, and he's going so over the top. Mm-hmm. But he's at least the most enjoyable of the movie. Sam Worthington, I mean, oh, I think God. that's the thing to me is I don't necessarily think the whole cast is wooden. I just think it has the problem of like we have our audience surrogate character in the form of Sam Worthington, and he's so bland and underwhelming, especially when you consider the fact that he has to be in motion capture for so much of the movie, and he's a blank slate, so you don't really get much personality out of him, which I think really contrasts with someone who you did mention, who I think is giving it her Oh, Zoe Saldana. Yes. Yeah. I think Zoe yeah. Saldana, as uh, as Natiri, I think is really giving so much into that, and I think that she is, I think, the big strength of why people like really went behind the visual effects, which I still think are impressive, mostly when it's like any of the scenes of actually the uh, Navi together, really the, the special effects don't work as well when they have to mat in humans. When they have the humans just having the masks, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't work very well. Or Stephen Lang awkwardly inserted into that giant robot mech that oh. he has. That stuff isn't all that oh. well. uh, but when, when he touches her face, when mm-hmm. Sam Worthington as Jake touches Natiri's face, and his hand is like five times too big, like they just didn't know what to do. Uh it's uh the technology yeah, it's it do, it's it already doesn't hold up to me. Like it does work when it's the Navi, but the, the I I can't stand the creature design in this. They all got the same stupid mouth and they all got six legs and they all get, it just I it does doesn't work for me, man. It's weird where, like, I think the Na'vi do work interestingly well, and it's weird that there's one person who they distinctively go against doing, like, the similar design with, and it's Sigourney Weaver, because they want to have Sigourney Weaver's expressive face on her Na'vi. Fuck. <laughs> How bizarre is that? <laughs> I... It's just her face. Yeah, it's, it's her face and a blue person, pretty much. And yeah, Joel David Moore, they do make him look like a Na'vi, and it looks like the same fucking guy. Yep, <laughs> like... that's true. <laughs> but... That was the most bizarre thing when she when she's smiling and stuff, and I'm like, this is just what the hell is going on with it, this? It, it reaches a certain level of uncanny valley that I was a yeah. bit uncomfortable with. I, I'll say for me, um, I remember I was caught up in the hype of like, oh my god, James Cameron's Avatar. James Cameron, I've, I think I've said this before, at least off mic to you, Adam. But um, James Cameron is a, a very fascinating filmmaker to me in terms of like, I love most of his movies, but also. More importantly, he is one of the those guys who has like such a clear ego driven from like my favorite James Cameron story is him on the set of like right before he's going to shoot Aliens and he had just done Terminator at that time, just graduated from like the Corman School of Motion Picture Filmmaking, and he was like, "Hey guys, um, I know you are a bit tense about me because you liked Ridley Scott so much from the first Alien, but I want to go ahead and show you a screening of my movie Terminator it hasn't come out yet, but I just want to give you an idea of what kind of filmmaker I am." And the crew was so bitter, they didn't show up. No one showed up. And that created the monster that James Cameron is today. Which is so fascinating. That dude's just like, he was sitting in that empty screening room in England just like, Oh, I'll get them. I'll show all of them who I am. (laughs) I'm James motherfucking Cameron. (laughs) Oh, and he has been exactly that since. James motherfucking Cameron. And he (laughs) thinks it breathes it, eats it, and shits it. Like, he wakes up 
up. I'm James motherfucking Cameron. Like, you know he does. He just amps, he Travis Bickles himself in the mirror every day. I am God's only man. <laughs> James Cameron. Um, I am James Cameron. <laughs> but, so, I, I've always been fascinated by James Cameron, and then the lead up to this was obviously a lot of like, is he gonna do it? Is it gonna work? It's been the story with several of his movies leading up to Titanic. It was the same story of like, this is his bomb. It's gonna be his failure. It's not gonna work at all. And that movie grossed a billion dollars. And then this leading up to this one, it was a similar thing. But I was curious, especially if nothing else, for like all the advertising was definitely the groundbreaking visual effects in 3D. And I remember really enjoying it that first time. And then I didn't see it again until it was on DVD for the first time. And I got, like, the cheapo DVD that first came out. Mm-hmm. And it kept falling asleep. Yep. And this is the first time I've seen it since. Interestingly, I watched, actually, the three-hour extended version of it. Oh, boy. <laughs> which has, like, admittedly, I like it so much more in the original cut, where, like, it starts off with, like, Jake wakes up in the middle of that space station. And then it just gets right into, like, hey, we got, like, avatars. This is what we fucking are. Here's some brief flashbacks. Because in the extended edition, they have a whole sequence of him on budget Blade Runner world where he's at and he's in his wheelchair and I love there's a scene where he's at a bar and he's like getting in some trouble with some street toughs and they throw him out and then also immediately throw his wheelchair right behind him. <laughs> it feels like a oh, Simpsons gag almost with the timing horrible. of it. I don't think I've ever been brave enough to watch the extended version. I really don't. Um, mostly it's not worth the shit because it's a lot of, like as is with most James Cameron extended editions I feel like, those things are cut for a reason, because he likes to paint with a large, broad brush, and that's even more clear when he puts the shit he cut out back into the movie. It really shows up. To his credit, I'm fascinated with this movie, not in a way where, like, I'm invested in any of the characters, but on a technical level of, like, he clearly wanted to accentuate this technology, the motion capture, the 3D, all this other stuff, and he did it by doing the basis level possible storyline of, like you mentioned, a uh, white savior guy comes into the village. He's initially accepted as an equal, then he's shunned, and then his uh, evil white, uh, you know, corporate overlords try and come in. Uh-huh. Um, we didn't even mention Giovanni Ribisi, who is oh, for fuck's hysterically sake. stupid in this movie. Just like yeah, anytime, he's, anytime he's there, he's just like pitching golf balls and all this other shit. Uh-huh. Um, so uh-huh. it, it's definitely like it's such a baseline story to just accentuate all of this technical craft. And on that level, I sort of almost respect it, but at the same time, it makes for a boring movie that I don't really give a shit about most of the characters for. Uh, I mean, the fucking flying scene, when he first learns how to fly that goddamn sky dragon, whatever the hell it is, it, it feels like it's like 45 minutes long of him talking. I mean, it does feel that, and in theory, it's supposed to be like, oh, you're supposed to get invested in the Navi village, so that when, like, they end up getting destroyed, it means something. Yeah, but no, the, yeah, the, I think the problem is just that they make e- everything either extremely basic, they just make something, some of these things so extremely basic to the point where I don't know why we're supposed to invest, especially in Jake coming into this. Because they emphasize the idea that, like, oh, look, all of these, like, weird fucking um, daisy petals go all around him. And that means he's yeah, like pure of heart. A, that's Awa or whatever the hell. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the mother tree from Pocahontas, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I, I would not be surprised if in the sequels, because I've heard that Sigourney Weaver's supposed to come back, and she dies and becomes part of, like, oh, Awa. God. If she just ends up being, oh, like, the mother tree. going to be the embodiment of Awa or something. Oh, <laughs> sure. Just Jake Sully, listen with your heart. Michelle Rodriguez with that fucking face paint. Yeah, and uh, you know what, dude? You know what another thing that she does in this mm-hmm. is one of my fucking biggest pet peeves. It's when they're fucking firebombing the tree or whatever. And I didn't sign up for this shit. And she just flies away. Yes, you did. What was and in the contract you thought you signed? What, what, what well, do you think was going to What this? you doing this whole time before Jake? Mm-hmm. You didn't. You didn't show up there the same day. You're telling me you weren't dealing with these goddamn things and shooting at them and everything else before then? Mm-hmm. Of course you were. I, I just I, I I hate that they do it in movies all the time. That is such a big fucking pet. I didn't sign up for that. Yes, you did. You motherfucker. Of course you did. You're in a goddamn Apache helicopter with rocket launchers. What what did you sign up for? Oh, 
I signed up to yeah. see you, Adam Thomas. <laughs> I see <laughs> you. Yeah. Oh, God. Jake Sully? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, of course, not only is he the white savior goes to their thing and he's reluctantly accepted, he learns their ways, gets better at their own ways than they do. He becomes the Tom Acto or whatever, their, their prophecy. It's him. He leads this giant revolt, unites all the tribes. This one fucking guy who just learned how to do this shit in like eight months. Well, wait, and you forgot the bit in the middle, though, where he unintentionally leads the destruction of their god. And they're like, we hate you for about like a day. And then he comes yeah, back right, like, right. guys, I'm sorry. Well, he seems sorry. Let's do this. Well, he he flew the big one here. So I guess we gotta have him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's a shame, too, because uh, I, I think as we're describing this, I do want to mention that I think on a technical craft level as well, just some of those, like, the action scenes, like the actual beat of him flying, or the bits where it's, like, the big war that happens at the end of the movie, I give a lot of credit to at least James Cameron, actually, with the spatial construction of a lot of those sequences, because we get plenty of bad action films that have come out before or since this movie, and I'll be damned if at least James Cameron has a great way of communicating at least, like, the actual spatial geography of a scene during, like, the big fight sequences, the way that the actual, like, giant pterodon birds, like, throw the helicopters and stuff like that. I, I give a lot of credit to he has a really great use of the geography of the spatial interaction between a lot of these characters, even though they're, like I said, they're more tools than they are characters for those sequences to, like, be portrayed. That's the thing I think he he's always had, and I think especially in his later movies like Titanic and even True Lies also had this, is a lot mm-hmm. of just, like, the characters are more playthings for him to elaborate out on these big, giant sequences. Yeah, that's true. And, I mean, and James Cameron also knows how to shoot action, period. I mean, that's how he got to start. He's one of the best at it, sci-fi action especially. But the thing about it is this movie was just a vehicle to show off look what we could do look look at my new technology look at you know look what i've done i've revolutionized it again but the hype is so insane that is the greatest movie i've ever seen it's so beautiful it tells such a just a wonderful story about togetherness and like get the fuck out of here with this what do you, you, you you've never seen what so you were challenging my underrated choice a bit, Adam, in terms of how underrated necessarily is. I will challenge your overrated slightly in terms of, I would say, circa 2009 or 10. I totally agree that this is probably extremely overrated. But considering the biggest cultural impact of Avatar in the 10 years or so since it's come out has been, what's the cultural impact of Avatar? I would argue that I think the only thing that's sort of lasted in terms of its, like, cultural relevance is people talking about how it changed film at that specific time in terms of like the 3d and the special effects stuff and the motion capture use especially really like i think elevated after this point but um otherwise i don't think people really give much of a shit about it either way to make it over or underrated in any level it just exists yeah you know the thing is i mean i i don't disagree with you i do agree with you but Ah, fucking, I mean, four more of these things, dude. Four more Avatar movies. I guess that's a big part where I'm I'm saying it's overrated, too. I don't know that this movie warrants even one more sequel, let alone another four. You know what I mean? Well, right, and I'm not sure if it's really necessarily, like, much, like I said, um populist interest in it at the same time like i know they did also build the avatar uh, land in animal kingdom and it's been interesting hearing about that and how a lot of people are like either oh yeah i remember avatar and i remember liking it about a decade ago or small children who are like what are the blue people mommy <laughs> who don't even yeah. know what the fuck it is um i, I but i think it, it's still just it, it's so fascinating that this movie that made such a massive amount of money still hasn't had much impact. Like, I would argue, like, Titanic's right under it, and people would still, like, still quote Titanic, or still familiar enough with the iconography, like, King of the World, the fucking Celine Dion song. That one still has more of a cultural relevance over 20 years later than Avatar has in its less than 10 years. That's why I'm so curious about the Avatar sequels for, once again, it's it's a, it's the same story we've heard with James Cameron. Like, oh, it's his folly for Avatar sequels. How's this gonna work? He's gonna go to make it work, you son of a bitch. Don't you I know. doubt me. It's like every Marvel movie that comes out. Every single Marvel movie that comes out, I'm like, ah, this one ain't gonna do it. 
ah, this is going to be their first downfall, and then it's like a billion dollars. They have at least released one, at the very least, one movie a year to steadily keep it in the consciousness. That's true. Versus James Cameron has, like I said, just occasionally come back up from the bottom of the sea, just like, I'm making more of them! And then goes back under. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> that's been sort of the cultural lasting ability of James Cameron with this fucking franchise. Yeah, because I don't even know when the first one comes out. It's been pushed back. I remember they first when they first announced the Avatar sequels, 2014. <laughs> oh. <Yeah. laughs> and how long that's been. <laughs> at this rate, we're probably talking at least another two, three years. Probably, yeah. And and, and even then, I don't know, especially how even the Fox-Disney merger is going to affect that, too. Oh, well, I mean, I'd imagine not too much. You know, they have the, the Pandora world at Disney World now. Right, but I don't know how much Disney's going to be, like, allow him to... Oh, you're spending, like, what, $500 million, like, producing all four of the sequels or whatever? Let's calm down. I think it's even... I heard rumor at this point that it's, like, second and third movie are a go, but they're waiting to see how those do before they do four and five. Kind of thing. Yeah, right. That's that's what I heard, too. Like, the only thing I could see is really just... I wouldn't mind maybe exploring the other planets, maybe, of this universe, necessarily. I know he wants to do, like underwater motion captures is a big thing he's developing for the second one from what I'd heard mm-hmm. which that sounds interesting to me if nothing else and I'd, I'd just rather like we don't focus on these same people because he said that like oh no Sam Worthington and Zoe Saldana and even Sigourney Weaver and Stephen Lang are coming back but right, like, which, why the fuck is Stephen Lang coming back or yeah because it's, I, I don't know are we going to get uh, Stephen Langatar are we getting him oh, as a Nafi oh god <laughs> Or because he died on that planet, too. He's somehow intrinsically bound to it as well. It's That mech is the Genesis device. He's going to regrow <laughs> on fucking Pandora. Oh, God. And he did sell on... So it's a giant Stephen Lang robot now. I, oh. I guess. But um, it almost shows uh, the lack of cultural relevance the movie itself has shown by how much we aren't really talking about the movie because it's... I'll just segue into final thoughts with it, I guess, by sure. just saying that, like, it's a fascinating uh, visual technological achievement, and it deserves the Oscars it won at the time for, like, the visual effects, and even cinematography, which is interesting because it's the first digital film to ever win cinematography, completely digitally. I, I think that's also kind of muddy the waters in terms of, like, how much of this is actual cinematography versus sort of the visual effects kind of showing it off, given how much of this is animated. Um, it's definitely impacted the film world on that level, but with the sort of universe that they've built up here in this world, um, it's a very typical white savior story with a very bland protagonist in the middle and some interesting performances or characters on the periphery that ultimately are just sort of done in service of, like I said, accentuating the craft and the visual stuff, which I think makes it, if nothing else, not a movie I hate, but one that I'm just fascinated on a very cold mechanical level with, which is to say... I'm not that interested to see, like, these characters continue, maybe this world with new characters in it. It's, it's a fascinating, weird sort of historical barometer in film history of just like, hey, this movie that is the biggest success of all time is kind of forgettable and bland in every aspect that isn't technical, yet at the same time, it still is getting a bunch of sequels, and James Cameron is pushing hard his usual mantra of I'm James motherfucking Cameron you're gonna love this shit because I know how to place a goddamn audience and that gives me enough interest to see how the fuck Avatar 2 is but uh yeah so at the same time I fell asleep twice trying to watch the extended version of this <sighs> with uh we didn't even mention the the weird hair sex scene that also happens yeah, in the what middle the there. F? that's also extended in the extended edition it's really creepy where especially Natiri almost gives like a weird flutter like oh, reaction to it's just like I'm glad oh, you cut boy. that. This is really weird, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well, you know, I just if you're going at it for the visuals alone, then yes, it's for that, and I agree with you. It deserved the the Academy Award, things like that. I mean, yes, yes, yes. But it's the same fucking story that you've seen before a hundred times, and then you've seen since a hundred times. And no, I, I'm with you. I don't give a shit about these characters. I don't care where they go. I don't. I have zero interest in a sequel. I'm telling you right now, it's in the books. It's on record. I'm not going to even bother. I'll probably, honestly, never watch it again. At least, don't plan to. 
And somewhere in his underwater cave, James Cameron's like, oh, Adam, I will make you watch this. I will <laughs> I'm do it. kill that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Down there with fucking Jason Momoa Aquaman, just like, I will send the fish off to kill him. Uh, that's God. the end of our discussion on our underrated and our overrated movie for the evening. Uh, but we had some feedback to read, which uh, every Monday... Uh, we put up a feeler on our Facebook and Twitter page at DEDBpod asking you all about our topic that will come out for the following week. We asked all of you what are your most overrated and underrated movies out there, and we're going to read all this feedback here. First off, from a couple of people who have been on the show, Yavin uh, Havnamikhail says, Napoleon Dynamite is my go-to overrated movie. A decent, at best, quirky indie comedy that was lauded by too many suburbanites. Um, as for the underrated movie, uh, people pile on Chirac, despite it being the turning point in Spike Lee's current career resurgence. Uh, Tori DePina says, for overrated, he would say the Mission Impossible franchise, only franchise I know that has an okay first movie, a god-awful second one, that's still hilariously entertaining, and then four great action films in a row. Uh, Ryan Lindley says, The Conjuring and Insidious are both super overrated. Jeff Morris says, E.T. for overrated, dare I say Motel Hell for underrated. Uh, Kara Holden says, The Dark Knight is extremely overrated. Uh, Matt Kowalski says, overrated traffic and underrated mystery men. Um, Brian Kane says, I think Reign of Fire deserves more credit for its world-building tone and Matthew McConaughey's performance. James Rodriguez says, judging by the reactions from most people I've met, I'd count the disastrous Bohemian Rhapsody as overrated. While Forrest Gump has long left me cold, uh, as for underrated, A Wrinkle in Time was a lovely film that deserves to be seen by more people, and despite the awful performance by Doug Ray Scott, Mission Impossible 2 is an extremely entertaining and engagingly told action film. Uh, and then Stephen D. at WaitingFTH on Twitter says, My pick for overrated is The Princess Bride. I keep trying it to see if I'm coming around to it. But there's no energy to it, and a lot of the jokes feel like they need more work. Controversial opinion? Sure. Uh, I'll wear the abuse, though. Okay, first of all, I don't understand how Tori can say that they're overrated if he thought the first one was okay, the second one's terrible but entertaining, and then four great action movies. I literally had to oh. ask him, because he didn't add the context <laughs> of under or overrated. Like, I don't, I don't know... How that works. I think he's just trying to say he likes the Mission Impossible franchise. I don't <laughs> think he just want to throw that out there. <laughs> Which is fine. Friend of the show, Tori, come back to elaborate on why the hell you thought this about Mission Great, Impossible. What the hell? Napoleon Dynamite, yeah. You know, I really liked it when it first came out. I just recently rewatched it, I think literally like two or three days ago, because of Jonathan's comment. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't mind rewatching that. Man, does it not hold up. Funny little parts, but woo. I remember when that came out, I was young. I was in school, and all my friends just talked about how much, oh my god, I loved Napoleon Dynamite, Napoleon Dynamite. Never saw it in a theater. Saw it on DVD, and I was just baffled. Like, why do you guys like this shit? Well, I get it. Yeah, no, I get it now. It was an early example for me of just like, this shit's overrated as fuck. <laughs> why do people <laughs> like this bullshit? And, and to go with Ryan here... Uh, Insidious, I agree. I think it's overrated. I did not like the first one at all. I haven't even bothered with any of the other ones. I really like the first Conjuring a lot. Uh, second one, I wasn't too keen on, actually. I will say, since we last recorded, I have seen, uh, to, to comment on James's thing, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. 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 That's what I'm hearing, dude. That's what I'm hearing. I've, I've, I know people who saw it and they're like, oh my god, it's amazing. And then... I, let's put it this way. I don't know anybody who's like, yeah, it's all right. It's either people love it or it's just garbage. It's fucking garbage, dude. It's just that's what I've heard. It's every fucking biopic. I think it's all of like any of that praise has to do with like Rami Malek, who we're doing this not too long after the Academy Award nominations were announced. He's the only one that deserves to be, have any kind of nomination because like, God bless that dude. He's trying to carry what is just every single lame. Did musical he get biopic. nominated? He did. He got nominated. Yes. Okay, I know he won the Gold Globe, so. That movie was nominated for like picture, screenplay, oh, fuck out of here. sound editing, all sorts of shit. At least it was nominated for costumes because that thing looks like it was fucking costumed by Party City. It's fucking <laughs> disgraceful. It's interesting how funny that this uh, movie gets so much praise and uh, no one's talking about the director that much, Adam. I was going to say, you why. think he's going to show up? I think he'll show up to oh. accept the Oscar if it wins. I don't, oh. uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder why they're not talking oh, about him. Well, maybe because he's a terrible, terrible human being. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Read <Fuck> your Atlantic. <laughs> and Kara, 
my man. <laughs> I completely agree. Hot take. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, just no. We're not going to get into it. We've we've discussed this previously. Yeah. <laughs> Go watch, listen to our DC episode. Um, you know the thing is, I'll say uh, with Steven's comment. Actually, I have heard a fair amount of people not be on the Princess Bride train as of recent. I don't know if it might be like you had to be a certain age at a certain time to love it necessarily. Maybe, but you and I got almost ten. We got, I think, about ten years in between us, mm-hmm. age wise. And yes. I love the Princess Bride. And I love you the like Princess the Bride. Bride. Yes, I love the Princess so Bride. I don't think it's age at all. I just think it's one of those movies. Either you, either it speaks to you in a certain way, or it doesn't. I will say, you know what? The one thing as I've watched it that does not hold up well about that movie is the weird electronic synthesized score. The movie being like this medieval fantasy comedy movie. Regardless, just it feels kind of weird. The way that Princess Bride is like a much more traditional fantasy movie, in the way that it's kind of shot, it just feels kind of jarring with how with the rest of it. Yeah, but regardless, I, mean, I, I still just, yeah. I still love that movie for the most part. I'm not quite Me on that, that train, but it's not an unfamiliar opinion I've heard for sure. Yeah, uh, me too recently. Very odd. Yes. I will slightly agree with uh, Jeff on E.T. And I will say I always thought, um, I still really enjoy E.T., um, but I think The Iron Giant's a better version of that same story. The best version e- of that same story. Yeah, I agree. I've never really been big into E.T., even when I was a kid, but... Uh, the Iron Giant's one of my favorites. I yes. mean, it's so fantastic. And Motel Hell, come on, Jeff. Come on, dude. <laughs> we, cut, we've discussed cut. this with uh, Jeff on previous other instances. Uh, and... I mean, Jeff, <laughs> get over it. <laughs> Indiana, let it go. You're right. <laughs> but, uh, and then just, uh, we gotta, because Brian brought it up. I, I like Rain of Fire. Uh, I I think it's just a fun movie. It's crazy. It's over the top, but it's fun. I mean, what is there not to... Have you seen Rain of Fire? Yes, I have seen Rain of Fire. I dig Rain well, of Fire. What's not to like about it? I mean, honestly. It's dudes hunting dragons. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it's and uh, the, the scene where they're all doing a play of Star Wars for the kids is like, did you write that? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah, right, That's great. Right, exactly. that's, that's a really great moment. Yeah, um, I agree. No, it's been a while since I've seen it, though. I would have to rewatch it, especially because that was also around the time where, like, it was after Matthew McConaughey had kind of burst onto the scene in the, like, mid-90s, and after mm-hmm. his star kind of faded. This wasn't too long before he started doing those, like, really bad romantic comedies that would, like, dominate oh. his career. And it's one of the better performances of that era of McConaughey, before the McConaissance took him back. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And gave us Beach Bum. Yeah, right, exactly. Have you seen well, that fucking for... trailer, Adam? That trailer yes. is so fucking green. <laughs> Yes, it does. Mar- Martin Lawrence gives a pair of cocaine. I'm so down. I know. I gotta see it. <laughs> Matt, I still like Traffic for what it is. I do think it is a little overrated, but I still like it. And uh, I'd argue, honestly, Mystery Men, I loved it when it first came out. I have so many issues with that movie now. Just just the pacing of it a lot in certain places. I think there's still some fun performances in it, but I, it's just, it's, eh. Mystery Men's a weird movie where I think there was a point where it was, when it came out, it was ahead of its time, and now that time has passed. I think I that's agree. the thing. It's I like, 100% agree. It's a perfect satire of, like, that era where we're getting, like, Joel Schumacher Batman movies and shit like that. It fits perfectly for, like, that era, um, with, like, yes. the uh, Greg Kinnear's Captain Amazing, who is admittingly great. <laughs> Him with yes. all those fucking advertisements on his fucking shoulders and shit. Um, it's, I think it's a perfect satire of superhero movies of that time, and now it's quaint. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's that's an apt description. Yes, I, I think. Uh, but then again, I might have to revisit it. I don't know, maybe it has untold potential still left in it. <laughs> maybe. Uh, but we want to thank all of you for submitting that feedback, and also thanks to Chris Oliver for the music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that's used for our show. She accepts commission at fiverwith2rs.com slash eescarta. And uh, you can also find us, like I mentioned, at dedbpod on Twitter and Facebook. That's where our little questionnaires are put out on Mondays. Um, and we're also at uh, bill at gmail.com is our email address you can send feedback to and um, we encourage you all to go on to iTunes to rate and review us uh, to because that gives us more visibility we're also on like Podbean and Spotify and I should announce here uh, this is something Adam isn't even aware of I uh, just uh-huh. got the confirmation that we are now on Stitcher the popular no podcast app way. 
Yes, we just got Excellent. approved for Stitcher. So we should be on there as of this recording. When we're releasing this, uh, we are on the Stitcher app now, so if you want to go ahead and preview us on that particularly uh, popular podcast app, we're there. That's excellent. Yes, and uh, you can also uh, follow me at not the Who's Tommy on Twitter. That's my own personal account, um, and I also do writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com, and you can find Adam praying to the home tree. Oh, has heard me. <laughs> and she has not forgiven you. Uh, but... No. We're not finished yet, Adam, because now we have to do our picking for next week. So at the end of every show, um, we each come to the table with two movies of different quality. Adam has the two good movies for next week's episode. I have the two bad ones. And uh, our topic for the week is um, interesting because uh, we were thinking of topics to do. It's The fascinating thing is that uh, Jim Carrey, uh, 25 years ago, around the time that we were releasing that episode, had his amazing year in 1994. Which, consider the fact that um, in February of 1994, he put out Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Then in July of that year, he had The Mask. And in December of that year, he had Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yeah. No, that was like a huge year for him. Three of the biggest successful comedies of the 90s. That's how big Jim Carrey was at that time. And uh, you can tell it kind of uh, spiraled out after that point in the mid-90s. But he's always at least a very committed actor, or artist, in his modern cases, I guess. For good or bad, he's always present. I never get the feeling that Jim Carrey's phoning it in. And we'll talk about that a lot more next week, but let's go ahead and do our picking. So, for your two movies, which you've assigned two numbers to, um, I'll pick a number between 1 and 10, and my number, I'll go ahead and go with 4. At number two, I have a movie you and I have discussed before. We can get it on the show is I Love You, Philip Morris. I love you, Adam Thomas, for giving us this option. <laughs> you are absolutely welcome. I'm I so excited. We need to talk about it. Yes. That, that's an underrated movie for sure. Oh, 100%. It's an undiscovered movie for the most part. Yes. On uh, number oh. nine, I had the original Ace Ventura, which I still think is pretty funny. You know, um, I actually rewatched that not too long before we recorded this. And I'm really glad we didn't get that. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I, that, that doesn't hold up for a lot of reasons for me right now. <laughs> I actually haven't seen it in a while either. But what they do to Sean Young is awful. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> That's a discussion for a different day. So now, Adam, for my two bad choices. Seven. So at number six... I had um, a very interesting little movie that I'm sure we were all kind of predicting might be this choice. I have uh, Jim Carrey's dramatic thriller performance in The Number 23. God damn it. I fucking knew it. (laughs) Somebody stop me. You might have at least enjoyed that a bit more than my number one choice, which was Dumb and Dumber 2. Woof. That would have just been sad. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, because I've seen that. I don't know if you did. No, I didn't. Oh, you dodged a bullet yourself, buddy. You. All right. <laughs> so uh, that'll be a very interesting double feature. Be That's a back... crazy Jim Carrey double feature. That's very crazy. Not what our audience would expect. But then again, what does our audience expect from anything we do? I don't even That's... know. Well, on that note, uh, it is time for us to go ahead and. Uh, ride our uh, pterodons into the sky and say goodnight to all. It was hurt you.